and welcome to Season 1, Episode 31 of the We Are Speaking Podcast. During each weekly episode, 30-minute episode, we address some of our favorite topics, including American history and culture, government, education, and politics from a Black perspective. We are very glad you're joining us today. And a quick reminder, this is our last podcast of 2022, so after this week, we'll see you in the new year. The podcast is brought to you by our company, the Team Owen 313 Global Creative Community. We offer branding and marketing services, including online training and one-on-one and group coaching to independent writers, creative and solo professionals, and very small business owners. You can find out more at our website, TeamOwens313GCC.com. As a free or paid subscriber to the We Are Speaking publication, you can access the podcasts through the website, on the app, or on your favorite podcast player. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. My name is Pamela Hilliard Owens, and I am one of the co-hosts of We Are Speaking in partnership with my husband and business partner, Keith Owens who also wrote and performed the intro and outro music for the podcast. And speaking of Keith, here he is. Hi, Keith. Hey, good to be here again. Okay, this week, uh, there's there's been so much in the news this week, it's hard to choose one thing. But since my wonderful husband and business partner is a highly trained and award-winning journalist, we decided to focus on one topic about what's been happening to journalists uh, this week, especially over on Elon Musk's tw- Twitter. And so the name of this, the title and the topic for this week's episode is First They Came from the, Came for the Journalists. There's a, a meme that goes around every once in a while where someone holds up a sign that says, First they came for the journalists. We don't know what happened next because all the journalists <laughs> are gone. So I'm going to turn it over to Keith since he's the journalist and talk about a little bit of the history of journalism and where it is today. Okay, and if I can, I'm going to do something a little bit unusual that we uh, normally haven't done, which is read something direct from from the uh, from research, and because I think it's really important. Where I'm particularly talk about how we deliver from from the black perspective, and we talk about journalism. I think from the black perspective, you have to uh, acknowledge Ida, Ida B. Wells, mm-hmm. who was pretty much the founder. Ida Ida Barnett. Ida Barnett, right, and and so I think, and and so I have here. Uh, a short biography of her, and I think it, it what it speaks to just her history mm-hmm. and her, what she went through and the time that she went through it, and her bravery really speaks to the importance of journalism. Period. What journalism is all about. So I would you know, read that, and then I'll go from there in terms of my own views. But I just think it's so important because I know a lot of people aren't familiar with Ida Wells, and it's it's critically important for particularly with what we're going through now with the the attempt uh, to put down journalism. This is no, nothing new, by the way, but but just it's getting, gaining more notori- notoriety now. But um, this has been going on for a long time, and this is why. Ida B. Wells Barnett was a prominent journalist, activist, and researcher in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In her lifetime, she battled sexism, racism, and violence. As a skilled writer... Wells Barnett also used her skills as a journalist to shed light on the conditions of African Americans throughout the South. Ida Bell Wells was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi on July 16, 1862. She was born into slavery during the Civil War. Once the war ended, 
Wells Barnett's parents became politically active in Reconstruction-era politics. Her parents instilled into her the importance of education. Wells Barnett enrolled at Russ College, but was expelled when she started a dispute with the university president. In 1878, Wells Barnett went to visit her grandmother. While she was there, Wells Barnett was informed that a yellow fever epidemic had hit her hometown. The disease took both of Wells Barnett's parents and her infant brother. Left to raise her brother and sister, she took a job as a teacher so that she could keep the family together. Eventually, Wells Barnett moved her siblings to Memphis, Tennessee. There, she continued to work as an educator. In 1884, Wells Barnett filed a lawsuit against a train company, train car company in Memphis for unfair treatment. She had been thrown off a first-class train despite having a ticket. Although she won the case on the local level, the ruling was eventually overturned in federal court. After the lynching of one of her friends, Wells Barnett turned her attention to white mob violence. She became skeptical about the reasons black men were lynched and set out to investigate several cases. She published her findings in a pamphlet and wrote several columns in local newspapers. Her expose about an 1892 lynching enraged locals who burned her press and drove her from Memphis. After a few months, the threats became so bad she was forced to move to Chicago, Illinois. In 1893, Wells Barnett joined other African-American leaders in calling for the boycott of the world's Columbian Exposition. The boycotters accused the Exposition Committee of locking out African-Americans and negatively portraying the black community. In 1895, Wells Barnett married famed African-American lawyer Ferdinand Barnett. Together, the couple had four children. Throughout her career, Wells Barnett balanced motherhood with her activism. Wells Barnett traveled internationally, shedding light on lynching to foreign audiences. Abroad, she openly confronted white women in the suffrage movement who ignored lynching. Because of her stance, she was often ridiculed and ostracized by women's suffrage organizations in the United States. Nevertheless, Wells Barnett remained active in the women's rights movement. She was a founder of the National Association of Colored Women's Club, which was created to address issues dealing with civil rights and women's suffrage. Although she was in Niagara Falls for the founding of the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, her name is not mentioned as an official founder. Late in her career, Wells Barnett focused on urban reform in the growing city of Chicago. She died on March 25, 1931. And the reason why, if you can't already imagine why it's so important, number one, you look at the time when this was going on. Because um, slavery came to an end was eighteen sixty-five. So this is you know, ba- barely uh, a quarter century after the end of slavery. And this woman, not, first of all, she went to a university, and she's and, she, and she's protesting, and she's about me you know, by herself, a black woman. And it's also important to point out that even when you have the women's suffrage movement, this is like the, this is the white women's suffrage right. movement because they they weren't advocating for black women, right? And the lynching that was going on, mostly of black women, but black women were being lynched too. But but her willingness to bring this out and to focus on this. And it's also interesting, more than interesting, because you look at when lynching was happening so much during the South during Franklin Roosevelt's administration, mm-hmm. and he was hesitant right. to bring attention to that because it jeopardized the Southern vote. It was his wife, right. Eleanor, was a woman, who pressed him and said, you've got to bring attention to this. This really kind of gives a base for why journalism is considered a threat internationally right. and why what we've supposedly pride ourselves for here in the United States as a free press is because of what the, what has been done and could continues to be done in so many other countries because leaders know, particularly dictatorial leaders, right. know that if you have a free press, 
their rule is in jeopardy, right? right? Because when you begin to, whether you talk, you took a look at somebody like Putin, who has done everything to shut, when, mm-hmm. who's not only shut the media down, but the war in the Ukraine, which we spoke about before, mm-hmm. what he's purposely done is the news of the people in Russia are getting is slammed to make it look like they're winning, right. when in fact they are hardly winning. But that's the power of the press. They realize we have to shape the narrative. We have to shape the message, because if it doesn't go our way, we're in trouble. Right. So when Putin began to ruin, the narrative began to come out, when people, people are, for the first time, calling for him to resign. Mm-hmm. That's, all, that's almost a death sentence. But people are no longer worried about that. The same thing in China. I guess called you know free press in China mm-hmm. when that was shut down. Right, and and that was by the past month, couple of months when that was shut down. And the last copy of that paper was I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was a million, a million, a, a million, million. Mm-hmm. million copies sold out once again because people want to know what's happening. Truth shouldn't be that dangerous. Right. And that's what that's what is so terrifying, and also what is so upsetting because the the best journalists. You know, whether you go to Bob Woodward, who brought down the Nixon, Nixon administration, but so many more before him. That's why I want to say, every, look, many people have heard about Bob Woodward. Not, not as not many have heard about Audie B. Wells, which right. I would argue is far <laughs> superior what she right. did with what she was up against. But, but both. Right. Demonstrate you know, a white man and a black woman at a much earlier point in time. Both of them took on the government. And both of them took on, I'm in a country that was supposed to represent freedom. And and I I might say, and I'm going to write about this uh, this coming Monday in my op-ed, the First Amendment, the very First Amendment uh, to the Constitution of the United States, protects freedom of the press. And the first thing authoritarians or authoritarian wannabes do is to attack the press. And for the very reason that Keith said, because the point and the purpose of journalists is to be eyewitness to what's going on. There are journalists and then there are op-eds. Those are really two different things. Journalists can be an op-ed writer, but when we think about the news, we're thinking about an eyewitness to what is happening now. And that's why the authoritarians do not like the press because it shows what's happening now through, through a, through a a supposedly unfiltered lens. Now, when the, when a person is an op-ed writer, that's not bad. It's just different. Okay. They have a specific lens. They have a specific worldview. But the strict news reporter is supposed to be unbiased. This is what happened, fact by fact, point by point. And that's why the authoritarians and the dictators do not like a free press. And that is why it, that was the one that was in the very first amendment to the Constitution, because you have to remember when the founders founded the United States, where, where they were coming from. They were coming from being ruled by the British. And of course, the British didn't like the free press. So, didn't like the press because it, it was for the colonists and not for Britain. And so then going into the 19th century, as the same thing with the newspapers that were put out by the abolitionists and, and also by people like Frederick Douglass, people like that. They were also journalists. These were also, this is all, these were also newspapers that told the story from a particular, from a particular vein. And I'm going to talk about Twitter in just a minute because I want Keith to go on with the, yeah. with the, uh, History of journalism, especially black journalism, but even today, the the um, journalists and the free press is being attacked if it doesn't go along to tell the story the way the author, uh, authoritarian types wanted. 
Carrie Lake, the, the, the losing candidate for governor in Arizona, actually told the reporters that were there at one of her rallies, I'm coming after you when I am elected. Right. And that's, well, that's what they do. And Pam's right. Op-ed writers or opinion writers, and we're all journalists. I mean, right. Because I've been on both sides. I've right. Been, I'm, I've made my name more as an op-ed writer, but I was a journalist for 20 years. And it's always been arguing about there not being a point of view. Because, right. Because people have points of view, just right. what you choose to write. So that, that can be argued back and forth. But what the best journalists do, however, that's, but that's where they came from of, of, of bending over backward to get both sides. Right. To the degree that, cause when you record it, once you record what happened, just at a base level, every, almost all reporters cut their teeth on covering, covering government meetings. Right. You know, or, or what they call, what we call cop reporting. Right. Basically going, getting the report, what happened, what happened in the sense of the who, what, where, when, how. Right. This happened. How did it happen? Who was responsible? Record the details. That's all you're doing. Right. You go to a government meeting. That's what, because that's where you're learning the basics. You, you go to the meeting. This is what happened at the meeting. This is what was passed. This was what, what, what wasn't passed. Then you start to find out what was, what was supposed to pass. What happened? What was, on, what went on in the background? Right. Why didn't they cover that? And you begin to, but again, you're just, you're just recording, but then you start to dig and find out what's going on. And that, is, from, is that like I'm moving into investigative reporting? Yeah, yeah, that okay. begins to move into investigative reporting, exactly. And I think I've always felt that when you move into op-ed, people have different views on that. But when I move into op-ed, I always, I try to report more, I'm, talk more about what had been reported. Because right. I'm depending on, because that way it's, it's established. Right. You know, you can, you can argue about they got it right, they got it wrong. But I'm saying, this, okay, this, this has happened. This is what I think about what mm-hmm. happened. Now, there are those op-ed writers who break stories in their op-eds. I rarely did that. I have not opposed to that. But my feeling was, if I'm going to do that, mm-hmm. then I'm responsible for the entire reporting. Right. You know, I can't just go and report a story and then tell my view right. of it because you don't even know what happened. Yet. Right. You know, so the point, so the point of view is, and from the back perspective, George Floyd is probably one of the best examples from a woman who is not really formerly a journalist. She wasn't a journalist she at all. She, she was just happened right, to be right. there. No, she wasn't a journalist at all. But what she did, I would say, was a journalistic act. Right. And I think people need to understand the difference because now so many people want to claim to be journalists just because they got a camera and, and, and or can write something. As jur- and we always make the comparison is that, okay, do you, do you want a journalist to perform heart surgery on? No, because we're not trained. Well, same thing with, the same thing. Journalists are trained. They have to be trained. You can't just pick up uh, your, your computer or mm-hmm. take a picture or something and then call yourself a journalist. Right. And if I can, if I can turn, um, really segue just for a second. The, the, the young lady, she was only 17, who, who took the video on her phone of the cops while they were murdering George Floyd. She was, remember, he, he, they stopped him because they thought he gave a fake $20 bill at a convenience store. She was on her way to the convenience store just to buy something like you buy at a convenience store. And when she saw what was happening, she pulled out her phone. And, uh, and I'm wrapping this up with Twitter because when she, after she, um, got the video, number one, that was a record of exactly what happened. And that's what I was okay. point, mm-hmm. it was, that's the point I wanted to make was that as opposed to who's a journalist or not, but what she did was a journalistic act. Right. Exactly. You know, exactly. because the, the fact that what she's, she's not trained, but she recorded what happened. Plain and right, simple. Right. And, I, and, that's, and she had the presence and, of mind to do it. She about to do it, right. And I said, and that's a journalistic act yeah, because the, the fact was that had the police, thank God we had a black police officer who was conscious, I mean, mm-hmm. the chief of police at right. the time. Mm-hmm. Well, because he admitted 
if he had gone off of the standard camera, right, the body cam, the police cam, and other neighborhood cameras, they didn't catch the angle. He could not have made a decision, right, because right. it did not show was enough of what was happening. Right. But somebody from the community, right, delivered that footage that she had taken, right, and he could have chosen not to take a look at. It. But right. when he did, that's what made the what she should because her her footage showed what really happened. But that's what when we talk about journalism and particularly the importance of journalism in underserved communities. Right. Because intrepid, investigative journalists, in all, in all these angles, when you look, right. where you're looking at Three Mile Island or Chernobyl or anything, when they investigate, if they, they did not dig and find out what really happened right. in these communities, because we're the ones that really need right. good reporting and why the folks in power don't want it, because the people who are most vulnerable are the ones who are most exposed, who get trampled. And if it's not for the journals to say, hey, right. look what's happening, it goes on, continues to go on. And and and, and this, this this ties it up to what my part of this podcast, <laughs> this episode, the young lady, and you were talking about underserved communities, the young lady had the video, not only was it given to the people who were in charge of charging these people and and, and, tra- and uh, trying them, and that video was, was evidence number one, but she also posted it, or it was posted for to Twitter and Twitter goes around the world. And so when she posted or, or when it was posted to Twitter, everyone was able to see it and everyone was able and, and the largest protests worldwide were after the George Floyd murder. People in other countries were marching for George Floyd in Germany, in Japan. And all. These the aren't even the, the largest prote- set of protests in the world. And they would not have had the true story had this not been posted to Twitter. And then it came and then it went out from there. And so talking about a place for marginalized voices, a lot of people, yes, use, well, first of all, only Less than 25% of, of Americans even use Twitter. But once it's on Twitter, then it goes out further. And the sad thing about Twitter, it's always been a place where people of all kind of voices, even the horrible voices, were, were you know, had been. Because it's supposed to be open to everyone. Now, when I, I, I started Twitter, when I started my, became a solopreneur in 2008, and for a whole year, I followed one person, my daughter. It wasn't until later that I expanded it and could see what, how, how I could reach other people. But what I have done in the last few years, I, I, you can, you can do this on Twitter. I made a list and I called it my favorites. So I only follow people I want to follow. So I don't see all the rest of that horrible stuff. But I do see uh, the, the tweets from people that I want to follow. And if I see any horrible tweets, that's because of people I follow that we have re- retweeted them. But for people who are historians or like history, and especially for academics and journalists, that was a very convenient place to see everything you're interested in in one place, rather than being scattered over four or five different places. And that's why people who use Twitter and like Twitter, that's why they used it. Of course, then there were the people who used it to to incite violence, like the former guy, to spread hate, all of that. And a lot of them were kicked off Twitter because, yes, you can say what you want to say, but you cannot. But but spreading um, hate speech to the point of violence that was even uh, bad enough for the the old Twitter to throw you off. Mm. And because that's when a lot of conservatives are like, we're not being allowed to be on Twitter. Yes, you are. But not if you are inciting violence and spreading you know, hate and spreading misinformation about COVID, things like that. Those were the people who were thrown off Twitter. They were all brought back on with Elon Musk who, and because instead of Twitter being like a worldwide town square, 
where anybody and everybody can speak. He has turned it into a haven for right wing, far right wing hate speech. And when I, and I turned this into journalism because, oh, and the other thing about Elon Musk, he's a, he's a Trump wannabe because he's a billionaire who, who bought this company for $44 billion, has no idea how to run a social media company. And it, and it shows. And if you are the CEO of such a huge organization, you don't have time to sit there and, and reply to every tweet. And if that's what he's doing, then he's not running the company. You can't be that thin. And you can't, and then you can't be that thin skinned. And that's why on Thursday, we call it, you know, the, the, the Thursday night massacre because, because he suspended without warning the, the accounts of several well-known journalists and media companies because they did something that he did not like. The number one thing that he did not like is that a 20 year old who's not a journalist at all post a link to where people could follow, um, Elon's, uh, private jet. Well, that is public information. All jets can be followed online, except probably the military and, and Air Force One, but that's a special, but any, but all private jets can be followed online. So he didn't post something that was hidden. He just let other people know it was there. And then when a couple of other journalists, because it was newsworthy, retweeted, he cut, cut, cut them all off. And also because they criticized and, him. And anybody who criticized him, yeah. he shut he them all. He right. suspended all of them, uh, suspended all of them on Thursday. Now, as of today, Saturday morning, he's brought a few of them back. But the reason, and when I'm listening to these people on, on, on news shows and journalists, the reason that they were on Twitter was because number one, they could spread their messages loud, you know, far and wide, and they could see what else. There are some people who turned on Twitter just to get the news because everything was in one place. All of the news, all the newspapers and all of the TV, TV news, it was all posted on Twitter and they could just scroll down and read everybody at one place. But now that the hate speech has taken over, people are leaving Twitter, which is not good for, for Elon Musk advertisers because that's, that's how they get paid. And so it's a big mess over there. But the biggest mess is that he, he, he says he's for free speech, but only free speech that he likes, which is exactly what which Trump is, which was, is free speech. which is not free speech at all. And is exactly so Trump, some Trump like. So Keith, really quickly in the few minutes we have left, talk about some of the black newspapers that came around, especially in the 20th century. Oh, the number of black news. I mean, you've got, you've got of course, uh, Chicago Defender. You have the Amsterdam News. Well, <laughs> I should start with my own newspaper. I was editor of Michigan Chronicle, uh, mm-hmm. which is the oldest black-owned newspaper in, in Michigan. Right, uh, right. Michigan Chronicle. Then, of course, the Amsterdam News from New York, one of the oldest, most respected. You've got, I believe, I said the Chicago Def- Chicago Defender, mm-hmm. uh, with another very, very well-known newspaper. There, there, there are a number of. I can't think of all of them in my head right now. But there's, there's the the black better term, the black press. Mm-hmm. You know, has was well, again, as in with other in other areas of our country, democracy, where African Americans were not allowed uh, or were discouraged from being a part of the mainstream. So we started our own, and and, that, and some of the best journalists of all time. I would kind of liken it to also uh, Negro baseball league, Negro right. league baseball. Right. They couldn't be part of the major leagues, so they had their own league. And mm-hmm. So same thing, black league journalism. Those who did who did. Cracked the wall, were often relegated some desk far over somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a number of stories of how they were treated, what happened. I knew personally about the story of, of the, one of the first African American reporters who was hired by the Los Angeles Times. Mm-hmm. We were told that story when I was there. Who they they had to hire? They, he he was working in another department mm-hmm. in the L.A. Times, not as a journalist. But then the uh, the watch riots right, right. broke out. They had nobody. They weren't going to send. 
a, a, a white reporter mm-hmm. down there because they got killed. So they had to get somebody black. So they literally gave this, they gave him press credentials, got pulled him out of the department, gave mm-hmm. him press credentials, gave him a notebook, said, go down there, record what you see, and come back. And that's not the way to do it. But the point is, is that the black press was founded in going back again to Ida, Ida B. Wells mm-hmm. to, ex- to expose the truth of what we knew and of what was going on in black communities. And this would do, do and a lot of focus is given, of course, to the high profile, with just, justifiably so, investigative journalism, uh, anti-lynching, the Ida B. Wells mm-hmm. did. But I think equally as important, and what was really important to the communities, were just basic mm-hmm. things, weddings. Right. Weddings, births. I mean, sweet 16 parties. Sweet 16 parties. Those things mattered so much right. to the community. I mean, Michigan Chronicle was known for that. You wanted to know what was happening. That's what people were really looking for. We wanted to know mm-hmm. if something was, if somebody was being killed, but that's such painful right. stuff. But the overall community, mm-hmm. they just wanted to know who got married. Right. What happened? I said, who sweet 16 party? All the things that were just happening on the block in the neighborhood. Right. And, and then, Community meetings, right? When they were having you know, church news, mm-hmm. you know, church news was was a big thing in the crowd. Still, is a big thing in the crowd, right? Because that's the only time where place where people could know mm-hmm. what was happening. You it, with with because the, the churches have tons of news, right? About what's going on, and that was community news. So the black press was basically just community news, right? And then the ones that were most active because there were you always go back there's always been in our community we lionize you know malcolm and martin now right but we know that back during that time martin didn't have an easy time right it was just the black community they all the pastors were not thrilled at all with them raising all that sand right well the same thing i know happened with ida b well there was not all of them wanted her going around Mm -hmm. raising up sand about lynchings and what white people are doing because they're they're scared to death of Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. so there so well, we praise them now, okay? right. but I, I think it's fair to say, by and large, mm-hmm. the majority of the community, what they really wanted the paper for right. was just what's happening in our community because we have no idea right, exactly. what's happening in our own community. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the short answer to the question mm-hmm. in terms of the black press. And, of course, you can get the bigger men like Ebony, right. obviously Eb- Jet. Right. And Jet, I think, is an excellent example of Ebony, too, I mean, mm-hmm. but on a bigger, on a bigger, broader scale. But Jet was just what's happening in the community. And, and, Jet, and, and Ebony, because if being a, a regular sized magazine with photos, it was extremely right. important. Jet was, of course, the smallest, but it came out weekly. And so it was more, it was, it was really news that happened right, right then, then and there, right. plus all of the other things. So they, they were, as a matter of fact, they were both by Johnson Publications, right. but they both, but they had uh, differing perspectives. Ebony came out monthly, and it was the only place where you could see the beauty of black culture in America through through our eyes. Because these other people, they, they didn't. Never saw that. You never, you never you saw, never that, saw in, that in in a lot of papers. You wouldn't see attractive black people, right? Exactly. I mean, well, with obviously beauties in the eye of the beholder. But but non stereotypical. Yeah, non stereotypical is probably a better way to say it. Mm-hmm. Just normal people, well dressed, you know, sharp looking people, African American people mm-hmm. that just uh, that we saw every day in the neighborhood right. going to work. You would never see those exactly. images anywhere else. Exactly, and that's the thing about Jet Magazine, which came out weekly. And so, what happened the previous week in the news was in there, plus the smaller things, the the cultural and community things. But, but the, like, as you said, community, that's why the black newspapers were so important because they, they concentrate on the community things in the communities that they serve. Jet and Ebony both were national magazines, so they weren't as able to do that, you know, with, with a local flavor. So, but I, just quickly before we get to the end, I want to talk about William Lloyd Garrison. 
from the 19th century. And he was a, a, a reformer and very, he was an abolitionist and very anti-slavery. And he, po- he published his newspaper called The Liberator. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and it started in 1831 and lasted until slavery ended. And he was also almost lynched. He was also attacked because of his, in the North and in the South. He was almost lynched in Boston because of his anti-slavery moves. He was the one who discovered Frederick Douglass. And then Frederick Douglass wrote a lot of essays and editorials in the, in his paper, The Liberator. So when we're talking about how media founded in 1831, right? Yeah, and 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 he published it until after slavery. But then Frederick Douglass realized that slavery was not the end of discrimination against black people, and he continued to write editorials there in the Liberator, and then it went out to the larger press. So when we talk about how if 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 there weren't people like William Lloyd Garrison and Ida B. Wells Barnett and and the rest, and and then of course all of the uh, publishers of black media in the 20th and 21st century, we would not have known that because they would not have covered it. If it weren't for people like William Lloyd Garrison and the other abolitionists of that day, you would have thought that slavery was just going to be a normal thing in the United States forever. You know, So we just want to talk about number one. Number one, talk about how important journalism has been to the United States and to the black experience since the very beginning. How even today, authoritarian governments and authoritarian wannabes in the United States are against the free press because it tells the truth. And so we have to both look at the history and look at the, what's happening currently because even though in the midterms we saved our democracy for now, there are still strong pinnings of taking over the government and, and making it into a theocracy and an authoritarian rule that is very anti-democracy. And we always have to be on the lookout about that. Yeah, I don't have too much more to add to that. I think that's probably a good place to bring it to an end. But that's just, once again, recapping mm-hmm. what's important in terms of journalism is because that's what keeps the country free. When you shine a light on it, that's what keeps it free. And if people don't want a light shined on it, then that's when you know something's wrong. Right. You know, and because the, the more you get, the more the more darkness there is, mm-hmm. the less safe that you less safe you are. And so I th- so this is so when you fight for a free press, it's not doing a favor to the journalists. You're doing a favor to yourself. You're doing a favor to the entire country because once once we lose that, mm-hmm. you're once we have somebody else controlling and take and because we already have the majority of the newspapers are owned by corporations. Now. Right. They were family owned, you know, small group, local, locally local, owned, locally owned. Mm-hmm. They were locally owned. That's not the case anymore, and mm-hmm. that in itself is a threat. But at least we still have something resembling mm-hmm. the free press. But once you get to the point where what Elon like Elon Musk, which right. is which with somebody where the billionaires control the media. And keep in mind as I'm pretty sure you mentioned that I'm an old school, I get most of my news stories from the news. Right. But most younger people and a lot of people, they get their news from so when he controls that, he's also controlling the media. Exactly. Because exactly. he's controlling their access to media. Right. And when you have billionaires Whatever they're bent, controlling access to media and controlling stories, that is a complete threat. Exactly. To the American way of life. And because, and we're going over time, but even Trump and a lot of his rallies encouraged the rally goers and his supporters to beat up the yeah. reporters. Right. And, and the drag them out. And always point, always mm-hmm. point, they were always in a pen and mm-hmm. just made everybody looked at them. The journalists felt threatened because he was. For their tar- lives. Right. He was targeting, pointing them out right. as the enemy. Right. Exactly. 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 
So that's it for this episode and for 2022. We want to wish everyone a happy holiday season, gentle holiday season, and we will talk to you again in 2023. Yep, talk to you in 2023.